Jay Alcoholic. What a joy. Um, I want to thank uh, Lisa for taking the bullet for the group and hosting me this, uh, this weekend. I, I deeply appreciate that. Um, and, uh, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing to be here amongst you. Um, the last section we're calling what, Bill? Um, the Fruits... Sponsorship. The fruits of sponsorship. The fruits of yeah, this of... <laughs> We're from the land of fruits and nuts, and we bring you greetings. We bring you greetings. People always say, you know, Los Angeles, I say, it's a strange place, and it was designed for strange people, and that's why I live there. <laughs> Don't give up. Don't give up. They say don't quit before the miracle and, and don't quit after the miracle. And my life has been a series of, uh, of, of very, very interesting experiences since I came to you. And uh, I, uh, I, I bought the whole package. As I said, uh, the only thing I think that's remarkable about my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous is that I've never left. In 30 years, I've always had a sponsor. I've always... Uh, I've always been sponsoring um, my home group, the Hermosa Beach Men's Stag. I've gone to it every Monday night. I've been in town for 30 years. Um, and believe me, there were times when that thing needed to be gutted and burned to the ground. <laughs> One time I actually came to Bill and I said, that's it, I've had it, I'm quitting. And he said, you can't. So I went to our other friend, Jim, and I said, Jim, that's it. I'm quitting. He said, you can't. So I can't, and I just show up. I was speaking to a friend last night, and, and one of the things about uh, my kind of thing about AA is that I can't decide whether or not I'm going to go to the meeting. If it's Monday night, I'm at the meeting. You know, if there's something else going on that's important, I'll, I'll go and do that. But if it's Monday night, I'm going to be at the meeting. Tuesday night, I got a meditation group for men at my house. Wednesday night, I'm up at uh, Roxbury at another meeting. Uh, and Thursday night, I'm at the 11-step group with my wife. And, and each of those meetings is equally wonderful to me. I love them all fiercely. But this thing about what are the fruits, well, you know, first of all, uh, let's get back to family a little bit. Because family is, you know, where we all... You know, the, my my father um, was a hard drinking, good looking guy who moved fast, and uh, and um, and the last thing I was ever going to be was with him or like him. And uh, and when I got sober, uh, the reason I got so he he accused me of being like one of my great aunts, and it was the most horrible thing that anybody had ever said to me, and I was shocked. And uh, I ended up getting sober a few weeks later. I mean, it was just wild how that all happened. But anyway, my uh, my dad, when I tried to make amends to him, when I had about four months sobriety, when I started, he got up and walked out of the restaurant. Just left. The next time I tried was uh, about a year later, and he just got up and walked out of the room. When I had five years sober, I tried again. Nope, not having any part of it. Ten years sober, tried again. Still, he, he kept drinking, and uh, he didn't want to be one of those whiners. All of his guys that he drank with, they all had to come to AA at one time or another. My dad, actually, the last driving under the influence he got, he told the judge, just send me to jail. I don't want to go to those meetings. And that's with me being sober a long time and another daughter being sober a long time. So he had a few opinions. <laughs> so anyway, uh, um, when I was 14 years sober, I went through a big change in my life. My first, uh, my first marriage dissolved, and, uh, and it was... The way that it dissolved was a wonderful thing. She was sober and had a sponsor, and I was sober and had a sponsor. And 
and we were able to take responsibility for our inability to create the kind of environment for my daughter and for each other that was uh, that was loving and supportive. And uh, and I was I was devastated, and I and I went back uh, I, I went back and you know went through the book again, and this time I did something a little different. I I actually called all the guys that I was uh, that that still were going to AA that I was sponsoring, and I said, "Let's do a workshop together. Let's all go through this together." And so we all got together and we started going along. and uh, And uh, I made the mistake of asking Bill to uh, to run shotgun on it when I was out of town, and uh, and it did not go well. And people weren't doing things correctly, and he felt incumbent upon it to resign with reason. And uh, went off and started one of his own that could be correctly done, and uh, and um, uh, he's done that on a number of occasions with different things that I've been involved with that I've tried to tried to bring him along on. But uh, but uh, but anyway, the the uh, uh, during that inventory that I wrote and and this experience was really important to me because I I found something that I had not found before in sitting there with this group of guys and we all had different things that were going on in our lives and by going through this together I think there were I think there were 18 of us that started and there were 14 of us that, that 15 of us that that finished but there were only 12 of us that actually did it the other 3 is built correctly observed, we're just skating along on our spiritual coattails and not really interested in doing the work. And, uh, But anyway, uh, one of the things that came out of that was, number one, having a new experience, not, not so much of the awareness of the book and all that stuff, which I got, but was observing the power of the steps working in all these different guys' lives. Because a year and a half later, all of the guys that did the work, their relationships, their jobs, all had changed dramatically for the better. And I saw the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd used to be seeing it one-on-one or maybe two-on-one, but I'd never seen it across the board work like that. And it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. So... You know, if you're in one of those situations where you can't find somebody new to work with, you know, correctly, get a couple of your friends. Get some people that you admire and get together, you know, because nobody really knows what it's like to be 10 years sober in Slidell, the difficulties and the problems in it. Get some common sufferers together and go through the book and do it and see what happens to the group. It was, it was a remarkable thing. Out of that, um, I, you know, I got to make another run at the old man. And when I thought about it, I sat down and I and I and I and I wrote him a letter. And I said, in the letter, I said, "Dear Dad, I have now left my family, and I now have committed every sin that I ever judged you for." Please forgive my arrogance. Please forgive my judgment. Jay, sent it off. A few days later, I get a call. Hey, kid, got the letter. Thanks. Click. <laughs> but it felt different. You know, I mean, he, he, he actually responded to it. About six months later, I'm up at this ranch. He lived uh, 10 hours away on the Oregon border. That's 10 hours of driving really hard. So, you know, normal person would be about 14. And uh, we, uh, I'm up visiting him, and I was at his home bar, right, because that's where you end up when you're with the old man. You end up at his home bar if you want to talk to him. And so we're, we're sitting there while he's having a few drinks with his friends, and he gets up to, to go to the head, and, uh, and the bartender says, Hey, kid. You know that letter you sent the old man? So yeah. He said he keeps it in his wallet.
we still were not close. Um, you know, his alcoholism made it so it really wasn't a safe environment for me or for him. You know, it wasn't so much that it was it wasn't safe for me. I mean, I mean, at any moment I might say something about his drinking. It must have been horrible for him. You know, I mean, come on. But uh, my grandmother Marie, who's ninety nine, who still lives at home, and I have the privilege of of being her, uh, being being the family member that's close to her. She, we decided that it was time for her to go and uh, move up to the ranch and live with my father. So we. We drove up there to have the talk with the family, and when we got there, we were greeted by my stepmother, Marsha. And when we got up there, the cirrhosis was so bad that she looked to be nine months pregnant. And we had no idea. And, uh, I mean, I knew that she was a bad drinker and that she'd had health problems and all that stuff. And so just so you know, you know, I mean, I was talking about how happy I am to be sober and all this. This is what love looks like with my father and his bride. They would eat Vicodin and drink salty dogs together. <laughs> this is the environment I come from. So anyway, uh, she's totally cirrhotic, and, and so what do I do? Well, the obvious my grandmother's not going to move up with that, so we're going to keep her at the house. But the next thing is, is that there's trouble in my family. And as a sober man, what do I do? What is it that I've been modeling to these guys? What is it that I've been been talking to people about? And, and, uh, and so I know that I can't change the outcome, but of and by my presence, that what I need to do is I need to start showing up. So every other week, I start driving 10 hours up, stay the weekend, 10 hours back, and just doing what I can to be helpful. And... Uh, and about four months later, my stepmother died uh, an alcoholic death. She died of cirrhosis of the liver, and, and I was able to be there and to be of service and to be there with her. And, and while I'm in there doing the best I can to, to, uh, to make sure that she's being attended to, my dad's in the other room drinking hard. And you know when you're throwing the ice cubes at the bottom of the glass, the way that sounds, you know, and uh, that was the soundtrack of what was going on. And uh, he was there as much as he could be, but alcoholism removes us from situations that we desperately want to be in. And, and so she passed, and my dad was really a mess. And his friend said to me, well, what are you going to do about your dad? And fortunately, I'd been going to those other meetings, and I said, I ain't going to do nothing. You want to talk to him, talk to him. And I gave him about four weeks, and, uh, and I decided to just stop by. Right, so that means I got to drive ten hours just to come say hi to the old man. And I drive up the driveway, and it's five o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. And I, I roll in there, and uh, uh, he's sitting in his chair, in his bathrobe, covered in his own waist. Um, he wasn't completely out of his head, but he was he was not of himself. And what was I, what did I do? What do you do in that situation? Well, see, I've been on the 12 step list. I've been on the 12 step calls. I know what to do with an alcoholic in that situation. I know how to pick them up. I know how to get them in the shower. I know how to wash them. I know how to treat them with the same respect that we were talking about with Mike, that this is not, this is just a drunk like me. And so I take him and I, and I, and I, and I get him in bed, you know, and I clean the place up and, and I found a, a place, the VA, that would take him and, and all that stuff and help him detox. And I said, Dad, you know, we just need to go get you a medically supervised detox. I'm not talking about you having to go to those silly meetings or nothing. And, and he says, uh, so the next morning uh, he gets up and he says, well, I've been thinking all night. <laughs> really? <laughs> I've been thinking all night. I'm not going to go. Now, he's in really rough shape. All i got to do is hit him with something hard, and I can throw him in the trunk. It's no big deal. But since I'd been going to those other meetings, I jump in the car, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I do what you taught me to do. I drive. I get a double espresso, make a couple phone calls. I call Bill. And, uh, and then while I'm driving back to the house, what comes to me is that line from Dr. Bob's Nightmare. 
that if you want to quit drinking by yourself, that's entirely your affair. So I go home, I go to the store for him, I say, good to see you, Pop, and I leave. And I didn't call the, I tried calling him for the next week, couldn't get a hold of him. And then finally a call comes through from him. And he goes, I'm about half mad at you. I said, really? Why? He said, I didn't know it would be that tough. And the old man kicked about seven Vicodins, a quart of vodka, and a half case of beer a day habit by himself. <laughs> and I went, yeah, baby. I said, I said, that's, uh, I said, that was really tough, wasn't it? And he goes, yeah. I said, they had it right in the last weekend, didn't they? He said, yeah. I said, yeah, okay. I said, and so what happened is, is we started to talk about alcoholism, not about Recovery in Alcoholics Anonymous. We started just talking about the not drinking thing. And I want to tell you that not drinking of and by itself, even though many times those of us who are active and involved in Alcoholics Anonymous and know the spiritual way of life, that just not drinking is an amazing blessing. An amazing, amazing blessing. And, uh, you know, I told him why it is we don't drink uh, O'Doul's and Sharps, you know, non-alcoholic. You guys know why, why you don't, why it's non-alcoholic beer, right? Because it's not for alcoholics. Because it's got alcohol in it. And and in the big book it says the only therapy that we have for alcoholics, these allergic types, is no alcohol in any form whatsoever. So I told him about that. I told him not a good idea to be drinking. Virgin Marys, because sooner or later you just want to get the spicing right, and you got to put a little Smirnoff in there just to make it go down right. And he understood that. So we talked about this stuff, and, and my father never had another drink for the rest of his life, which was 364 days. Um, he... Uh, my my sister uh, was up visiting him, and she uh, she's active in AA, so she's getting all kinds of phone calls from sponsees. And he goes, "Well, what's he goes? What's a sponsor?" So she sits there and explains to her what a sponsor is and all this stuff. And my dad looks at her and he says, "Well, I guess I guess Jay is my sponsor." While she was there, she saw that he was really sick, and she said, "You better get up here." And so I came up, and I and um, and uh, he had uh, he had cancer real bad, and uh, so we took him to the hospital, and you know they took a look at him, and they ran him through all the tests and all that stuff, and uh, and uh, they said, "Well, you know, if we if we take out a lung um, and we give you a lot of radiation every week, um, you know, uh, for six months." Uh, you'll have a 50% chance of uh, living two years. And he said, oh, okay. And I said, Dad, did you hear what they said after the doctor left? I said, did you hear what I said? I could, this guy hated doctors. No offense. But, uh, but he, <laughs> he, he, and, and, and he, and he said, he said uh, and so I explained to him what, what I'd heard, and he goes, that's a really shitty hand. And I said, yeah, Pop. He says, well, what do we do? And I said, well, I say we fold. I said, let's go home. You know that I've got some skills now from helping Marsha. I won't leave you. I'll come in. I'll be with you. And, uh, and so we went home, and I, I uh, got to go and uh, work things out with my wife and, and come back. And it, and it only took two and a half weeks until he, until he passed. And... and uh, and there were a couple of things in the hospital. You know, one was I was I was I was concerned about not hurting him and getting him out of there. And I'm thinking, well, we'll you know put a robe on him and all that stuff. And the nurse said, no, 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 you gotta you gotta make sure he gets his boots and his hat on. So we get him in, you know, his hat and his boots and get him out, you know, his rancher, and we get him get him out into the car, you know. And I say, uh, well, pops, would you like a cigarette? <laughs> 
And he goes, you know, I don't mind if I do. And so we stopped, and I got him a pack of cigarettes, and he took a drag off, and he leaned down, and he tapped me on the thigh as I drove him home. He was a man of few words, but I knew. And, uh, and I got to bring him home, and he got to die in his own bed in his own home and and uh, and any time that that happens it's a victory for for the power got to do the stuff with hospice and all that stuff and uh, a wonderful experience now you guys have been exposed to me for a little while you know that I'm really kind of strange and off the spiritual thing and this AA guy and all that stuff but see all I do is I show a little willingness and I get drawn further and further and further and uh on the anniversary of my 25th coming to you on the second day of May in 2004, a wonderful, wonderful moment of celebration in my heart for my community, that was the day that my father chose to leave this life. And if you think I was weird then, you know, I went completely off the hook after that. Because I knew that I had, there's far more going on than I have any idea, and I, I had the privilege of having sober of feelings, you know, that having the feeling of my heart breaking open and staying that way, and being able to accept and enjoy that that was just, that's just the experience, that's just the thing of, of, of being part of this. Um. What more? What more could any man ask for? What more could any man ask for? Um, you know, my uh, my relationship with my wife is all based around this stuff. I know that in our literature, there's a pamphlet that said the most Im- the most important job in Alcoholics Anonymous is the general service representative. I disagree. I think it's the sponsor's wife. And because uh, you need somebody that's going to be a double agent that's going to help guys that you're sponsoring to actually get through the experience of dating women and doing all that stuff. And she is. She is. And uh, she's been of great help to the men that I work with in, in helping to uh, teach them how to act with dignity and grace with women. My daughter, when she was 13 years old, said to me, Dad, it's all about the friends now. She didn't live with me. And, uh, and I remembered coming from a divorced family that I remember that part. And I said, okay, baby, well, you know, your mom says it's okay. And, and so, uh, you know, I've had you every weekend, all weekend long for a number of years now. And, and I love it and I'll miss you. But, you know, you can just come and be with me when you want. And, you know, she never slept another night at my house. <laughs> But we've been very close. And uh, a couple of years ago, I said to her, well, you know, when that experience happened, I said, did you feel that I was just dropping my fatherly duties? Um, and she said, well, no. I, I felt like you believed that I'd become old enough that I was a social being now, and it was time for me to go out and start mixing it up with people. And, and you didn't want to try and control that. She said, I felt you really believed and trusted me. And I said, oh, well, thank you, darling. I said, I tell you what, I sponsor guys that have teenage daughters. And they get very confused about what's going on with their daughters. I said, you know how Adele's a double agent helping my guys? She said, yeah. I said, would you do the same with my guys that have daughters? She said, Absolutely. And so I give her phone number to guys, and and I had a guy say, look, I paid for the family therapist. I paid for the private counseling for the kid. I paid for my private counseling. We went to the school counselor, and we went to the parish priest. And you know who gave me real practical advice about how to love and be with my daughter? Your daughter. So there is no aspect of my life that this thing does not touch. 
There is no boundary in it. I live this, this is my way of life, and it is a marvelous, marvelous thing. You know, we talk about letting go. You know, don't let go, man. Just jump. Just jump. You know, the older folks in here, they remember the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when they're going running off the waterfall. You know, oh, but, you know, just, just, just jump. Just jump. You'll be amazed what happens. You'll be amazed. Thank you. When Jay's dad, Jim, was sober that year before he died, at one point he brought him down to L.A. and was kind of showing him off because nobody had ever seen him sober. And uh, he brought him over to my house and we're sitting on the couch together. And, and I looked at him and I said, So, Jim, so, you're not drinking. <laughs> and he looked at me and smiled and he went, Yeah. And I said, Well, how is it? How do you feel? And he goes, well, the best thing about it is I don't have to go to those damn meetings you guys go to. <laughs> and we just laughed, man. It was amazing that guy wasn't drinking. It was really amazing. It was really sweet. Um, as I mentioned in my story, I was raised in AA, and I got raised in this house where now I understand what was going on there. Before, I, I really wasn't that conscious of exactly what was going on. But I was surrounded by a bunch of AA men and a, and a bunch of Al-Anon women um, from the age of six um, until I was like 15 or 16. Uh, it kind of, you know, you grow up and you kind of, you're not so much at home anymore, you know, but... For that whole time, there was lots of AA activity happening in my house all the time. And uh, when I was younger, younger, before babysitters and stuff, they would actually take me to this fright many meetings, but this Friday night meeting in particular in Westchester that my parents started. They started this meeting, and, and when it finally closed its doors, it was pushing 45 years old, you know. Um, and uh, and I would sit out in the kitchen. And during the break, I would help bring out the donuts and the coffee. And and I'd, at the end of the meeting, I'd stand, hold everybody's hands, you know, say the serenity prayer, keep coming back, you know. And and, uh, and I was surrounded by this stuff. Um, I hated, one of the requirements for being an alcoholic is I, I think you're almost required to hate your parents. And, you know, the alcoholic, for the alcoholic life to seem like the only normal life you got to create an, a reality around you to make that work. And, and the rule, first rule is, is that you can never take responsibility for your own behavior because your behavior is indefensible. So it's got to be someone else's fault. And usually mom and dad are the first in there trying to interrupt the fun and control your life. And, and we usually have this kind of overreactive kind of hatred for our parents. Now, some of them were really dark and horrible and alcoholic and awful. You know, some of them deserve some hatred. In my particular case, you know, my father got sober, and they, they just they weren't that bad people, really. At, at the very worst, they ignored me. You know, I mean, they just, most parents aren't qualified to be parents, you know. <laughs> they should have done something else besides raise kids. But they never beat me or molested me or anything like that. It didn't come from that kind of a violent environment. But I grew up with this this hatred, I mean, a, just a rage, especially against my father. He would come in the room and it would just turn my stomach and just make me sick to even be around. I couldn't stand the man. And we would have screaming FU fights at each other. You know, I would do most of the cussing. We were standing in the kitchen toe-to-toe, getting ready to go at it, that kind of... I really disliked him. And I really felt that it was my mission on this planet was to make his life as miserable as humanly possible. And I, and I really aggressively, I was not shy... And I really tried to do that. And uh, when I got sober in 1985, um, um, he was at the top of my resentment list. He was number one. I, I hated him much more than anybody else. And uh, at about a year sober, it was his 70th birthday, and I made amends. And I knew that I had to make the amends. And, and I knew I, I just couldn't live with that kind of rage and anger 
And one of the things that Jay and I, Jay taught me how to do this, and I do this with guys, is when you're going to make an amends, you write out what you're going to say. And let's review it, and we'll kind of edit it and make sure that you're not going to cause another fight, you know, or let's be clear on what it is you want to say, why you're making amends. What's the purpose here? What are we trying to accomplish? You know, we're not going to ask forgiveness from them. It's not up to us to ask anything of these people. We're just going to apologize for our behavior, plain and simple. And as I was writing down what I, I couldn't really recall what it was that he did to me that caused that level of rage. And I was shocked by that experience. I mean, certainly there had to have been worse than that. You know, I'd come up with like two or three things that weren't real nice, you know, I mean, but it, that kind of response? I mean, that was the first eye-opener that I had that maybe I had overreacted a bit to some events in my life. You know, and I have no idea where that comes from, you know, where that overreaction comes from. But I have a lot of memories in sobriety as well. I mean, this didn't go away right away. Where something negative would happen, and then I would respond, and everybody would forget about what happened as they're reacting to Bill flopping around on the floor like a boated fish. I mean, my reaction to this event was just clear over the top. You know, and uh, and that's a common thread in my life. But at a year sober on his 70th birthday, I made amends to him. And he said to me as I was taking him in the other room, he says, oh, you don't have to do this. And it was kind of like Jay's father walking out of the room. He said, you don't have to do this. And, and I looked at him and laughed and I said, you better than anybody know that I do. You know, I have to do this. I did not know that he had never done this. I figured he had done it. I was to find out later he had never done any of this this stuff. And uh, so I sat him down and I said, you know, I'm sorry that I wasn't the son that I know that you wanted me to be. And I'm sorry for all the horrible things that I've said and the horrible things that I have did. I'm not going to list them here. You were there. You know, I haven't forgotten any of them, and I'm sure you haven't either. And uh, you're my father, and I love you, and I don't want to hate you anymore. I'm tired of this. And uh, and we had a little talk. He kind of told me some stuff, and you know, and we had a little talk. And I I went home that night with my wife, my wife that I was married to when I came in. And as I was driving home back to our house, it was like somebody reached inside and grabbed all of that rage and just pulled it out of me. I started crying and sobbing, and I couldn't stop. And I've I've never done that before or since, I don't think, really. I mean, that was a spiritual experience that I was present for. I was stone-cold sober, and I felt that leave me, you know. Was it 100% of it? Like 95, you know. I mean, most of it was gone. And it just took all the energy out of all of that, screaming and hollering and sleepless nights and visions of his death in my dreams. It's just horrible stuff. And demons, we have demons, you know, these demons that are in us. And my relationship with him began to change. Um, he was not the kind of guy that, uh, that hugged you a lot. He wasn't a touchy guy. He was a depression kid, you know, working since he was 12 years old. Just one of those guys, you know, just a real quiet, hardworking, show up, you know, Salt of the earth, blue collar guy, do a dude, you know, just supplied for his family, took care of everybody, and you know, and, and that was the kind of thing. And he just wasn't a real huggy, touchy feely guy. He didn't coach soccer. He didn't sign me up for anything. He was building a business and doing a lot of AA. You know, and that's what he did. And uh, and I figured if I wanted to, and I was taught this, if I wanted to have a different relationship with him, it was going to be up to me to make that happen. But I, I couldn't wait around for him once again. Your behavior, my happiness is based on your behavior. I can't live like that anymore. I can't wait for that because you just don't behave right, you know. And so I have to, I have to be the one that's the move. I have to make that move. If I want him hugging me, I got to start hugging him. So I started hugging him, 
And then something horrible happened. He started showing up at my AA meetings, which was really awful. You know, I mean, he had kind of drifted away from AA. I mean, he was still going, but he really wasn't involved at any level of any kind, really. And when I got sober, he got perked up. And he started showing up to my men's stag, which was awful. And the real awful thing about it is everybody was really happy he was there. He was the old timer at the men's stag. Everybody was, oh, shit, we got Gordon now, you know. We had one old guy, Eric. Gordon had more time than Eric, which was really cool because Eric was an asshole. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, he still is. You know? and, uh, but, uh, and, uh, uh, Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, I hope that tape doesn't get back to He could take me out real easy, you know. And uh, Anyway, uh, and I got to see a side of my father that I'd never seen before. I got to see the guy hanging around with a bunch of other guys, telling dirty jokes and being a guy. I'd never seen that before. And he said some of the funniest stuff I've ever heard in AA, you know, and I'm not going to repeat it. We're in mixed company. And it was filthy. And I'd never heard him. He never cussed. He was a good southern boy, you know, growing up. He had manners. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am kind of a guy. But he's down at AA with the boys, and all that went right out the window, you know. I mean, pretty soon he's just telling crotch jokes one after the other, you know. And I didn't even know he knew that stuff, you know. And all of a sudden, he changed. You know, I saw this regular guy, you know, that wasn't trying to be the correct father or that, you know, he was just an AA dude. Well, as this was happening and our relationship was beginning to change and we were getting closer, you know, what I, you know, I found my father in Alcoholics Anonymous. I am truly blessed. This doesn't happen to very many people. You know, I mean, it ha- a lot of people heal with their parents and the level that we healed was really quite remarkable. You know, the fact that we could never share anything, but we could share AA. And uh, I started sponsoring guys. And at about two or three years sober, I was sponsoring this guy, Al, um, who's still sober to this day. He's 22, 23 years sober now. Um, And Al was taking care of his mother, and his mother was dying. She was quite old, and she was very ill. They didn't have any health insurance or anything, and... uh, Al was taking care of her, and this was a big issue in his life, and he would, was constantly talking with me about it. And he had to change her diapers and pop her hip back into the socket, and, and she wasn't a very nice woman either. She wasn't like Mother Teresa. You know, she was kind of a, just a mean-spirited, dark person, and, and Al had a sister, still does, and her sister is, his sister is very strange. They're a weird group of people, you know, and, and uh, alcoholism really runs in their family, and it's just kind of... A, and here Al is, fairly newly sober, with the burden of taking care of this woman, and, you know, just full-time, 24 hours a day. And this went on for several years. And one night, he's over at my house, and he had left the hospital. She had, he had to take her into the hospital because she was very close to death. And he had given them my phone number before cell phones, and, and he said, this is where I'll be. So he's in my kitchen. We're talking about what's going on. And the phone rings. And they say, Al, you better get back here. It looks like she's close. You better get back here right away. So he gets up to leave, but he's not leaving. He's just standing there. He's looking at me. And I know what he wants. And I don't want to go. You know, she's not my mother. I'm just sponsoring this guy, like reading the book with him and stuff. You know, we don't do that stuff. You know, there's limitations here, right? I don't have to go do that. It's not in the handbook. I've never read where it says that we have to go do that kind of stuff. That's way too personal. That's his mother, not my mother. I've never seen anybody die in a hospital, and I'm not looking forward to it. So I'm not going. And he's not leaving. (laughs) And, uh, And I finally said to him, I said, do you want me to go with you? And he goes, would you please? Now, this guy's got a family. Aunts, uncles sister stuff, you know. I mean, they're at the hospital. It's not like he's alone. But I now I'm stuck. You know, I can't just say, no, I'm not going to go. I was hoping he'd let me off the hook. I was hoping he'd say, no, that's okay, man. I'll be all right. You know, but hang by the phone. I might need to call you. I was, yeah, sure, sure, yeah. So I go down to the hospital, and I walk in this room, and it's horrible. I mean, she's 
all horrible looking and she's got tubes and ventilators and the beepers are going off and the room's half lit and and I'm creeped out. And I find a chair over in the corner and I go sit in this chair and I close my eyes and I just breathed a couple of times and I just said something innocuous like, God help me, you know, <laughs> you know, help me through this, something. And this feeling came over me. You know, I didn't hear any voices, no lights changed, but a feeling came over me, a very distinct feeling that said to me, everything's okay here. There's nothing wrong. This is not a mistake. Just relax. It's all right. And I believed it. I mean, I just kind of relaxed, and I, I sort of took a breath, you know, to expand my lung capacity, because when you're all uptight, you're like this. And I looked around the room, and it seemed like, well, this is, this is the way, this is what happens, right? And Al is pacing back and forth, you know, and he's a great big guy like me, but he's a larger man. He's a framer, like a carpenter, and he's got great big hands. And I told him, I said, come over here and sit down. There's a chair next to me. I said, sit down. And he, he comes over, and he sits down, and I held his hand, and I looked at him and I said, you know, man, everything's okay. There's nothing wrong here. It's all right. Just relax. And I said, let's pray. And we lowered our heads and I said some prayer. I have no idea what I said, but I just said some prayer. And while you know, something tried to be poetic or something, you know, I mean, I'm not real creative. You know, all the cool stuff that you hear come out of me, I stole from other people, you know. And, but he's holding my hand when this is happening and he's holding my hand really tight. And while I'm saying that prayer, I could feel his hand relax in my hand, just let go. That's intimacy. That's what it is. It's real quiet. It's very subtle. And I miss it all the time because I'm looking for a head rush. And I've come to find out that emotions are very quiet. They're very subtle. They're not dramatic like we are. That's a fabricated emotion. Most of them are very quiet, real sweet and soft and slow. And if I get quiet enough, I can pick up on this. And I need to be put in positions like that that I don't want to go to that I won't choose by choice to have those experiences. I need to go places where I don't even think I should go. I think the most spiritual thing said in Alcoholics Anonymous is get in the car. I'm serious. It is the most spiritual thing you'll ever hear in AA. Is somebody will look at you and say, come on, man, get in the car. And you're going to be thinking, nah, I got stuff to do because I don't know where they're going or who they're going to be with or what it's going to be like or what I might have to say or what might happen. What if I get stuck there and I can't leave when I want to? And, you know, we've got all these reasons. So most of us don't go. And we don't have the experiences. Al's mom died. And I had the experience of watching this man step up and care for his mother. Did he do it gracefully? No. He bitched and complained and moaned. Sometimes he yelled at her. And then he had to go back and make amends, you know. I mean, I mean, he did not do it gracefully. But he did it. He did it. He taught me more about what, it's to be, what it is to be a man at that time in my life than anybody else I'd ever known. Because I watched a guy not that dissimilar from me, a little weirder, Smoked a little bit too much pot. He's not all there. He's one of them surf dudes, you know. We call him Alabunga, you know. He's like, he's, you know, he goes by pseudonyms. He has fake names and shit. He's a little strange, but he's not that different from me. And he took care of his mother and took care of her until she passed. Sometime later, my friend Chris Gantner, who had a son, he got sober around the same time as me. Um, not a guy I was sponsoring, just a guy I knew. And he had a seven-year-old boy, and the boy contracted leukemia. It took him about two years to die. Um, Chris called me during the, the process of the, this process. He called me up because I had kids, and uh, we used to hang out a little bit together. 
And he called me up and he told me what was going on and he was just absolutely out of his mind. He was devastated. Um, this kid kind of helped him get sober, you know. It was one of those points where he was trying to take care of this. They were divorced. He's trying to take care of the kid and he was just too drunk on his ass in the kitchen one day and the kid came in and asked him for a glass of water and he just fell apart emotionally. He, he, those moments where he could see himself you know, and he couldn't even get his ass up off the chair to get a glass of water for his child. And it, it was so devastating that he got sober. You know, he finally went to AA and stayed. And, uh, uh, and this little boy was dying. And, uh, and I said, well, I'll be right there, man. And I jumped in my car and I drove to the hospital. And it was like a knight in shining armor. I, I'm going to go help my friend. And I felt really good about what I was doing and I wanted to be there. And I walked in that room, and I took one look at that little boy, and I about freaked out. The little boy was the same age as my daughter, and it was just too much. I just could not do it. I couldn't do it. And it was all I could do. I waited long enough because I didn't want to look bad. So I stayed there for a while, but as soon as I could get the hell out of there, I left. And I just almost went running out of the place. And I'm going back to my car. And I thought, man, I can't do this. I do, this is too much. This is one step too far. And I called him. I called my sponsor. And I told him what was going on. And I said, I can't do it. And he says, I'll go with you. I'll, I'll go. Well, he didn't know any more about it than I did. you know. And he didn't even know this guy. He didn't even know. This wasn't in his realm of influence. He didn't know Chris Gantner. And... Uh, so the next day, we went down to the hospital together because I still want to look at it. I didn't want to just say, no, I can't go. So maybe I can pull it off. And the two of us went in there. And uh, for the last several months of that little boy's life, we were there almost every day. Jay happened to be working close by where the hospital was. He had a coffee stand there. And uh, so we were there a lot. And... Uh, and I went through, at one point, I'm sitting in the room, and I was so stressed out, I started having heart palpitations. I got all weird, and Chris looks at me, and he goes, man, you don't look good. And I go, I don't feel good. And he gets to the nurse, and the nurse goes, Jesus. And they took me up to the cardiac care unit and hooked me up, right? <laughs> so Chris Gantner, the boy's father, comes up there, and he walks, and he looks at me hooked up in the bed, and he goes, this is the most ridiculous ploy for the center of attention I have ever seen in my life. My kid's down there dying. You couldn't stand it, so you had to fake a heart attack. Just, you know. Only in AA. You know. Black humor. You know, one of the things that we can do in situations like that is we can walk into those situations and make people laugh. It's like what we did with Keelahan when he was in there coughing his lungs up and we went and crawled in the bed, you know. It was the only thing we could think of. And it just, and he just busted up, man, you know. In the middle of darkness, you know, we can bring, we can shine some light. We can make jokes about things other people can't, you know. And the guy gets it. He gets it. He, he understands that love because he's been in A. He knows what it's about, you know. And we did that for Chris. And we stood around the little boy's bed and we prayed for his death. And uh, to, so he would stop suffering. It was just horrible. It was a nightmare. I'll never forget that. And the little boy died. And what I learned from that is that if one of my children got sick and died, I would survive. Would it be fun? Huh. Would it leave a scar? A big one. But I would survive. Because my friend Chris has survived. He's got two more kids now, remarried. He's got a family. You know, he lived. He lived. And I'm sure he still visits little Aaron's grave. You know, he'll never forget that little boy. But he survived. So will I. So will you. We survive. We don't drink and we survive. You know. Keelahan died. I was a friend. I was his buddy. Um, he went on retreat with us. He said one of the most powerful things I've ever heard in Alcoholics Anonymous. He was at a meeting. Jay and, and Rick Rose would pick him up and bring him to the meeting. Sometimes he'd have to leave early. He was in such pain. And uh, the leader of the meeting, if he was paying attention, would call on him. And, and, and Keelahan said, you know, if you're not grateful, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And when he said that in that meeting, nobody laughed. You know, you could hear a pin drop in the room. 
because he was damn happy to be there. He was happy to be there. And uh, I used to joke with him in his hospital room. I said, you know, when you die, everybody's going to think you're a saint. And he goes, yeah, isn't that something? (laughs) He says, don't worry. I said, we'll tell him the truth. (laughs) He was my friend. And we were there when he died. Jay was at at the side of the bed with him. We were in the house together. You know, when he passed away, he was our friend. And uh, ten years after I made amends to my father, my father made amends to me. Don't leave before the miracle. You know, I talked to a guy just the other day about his relationship with his father. He says, I think my dad owes me. And I said, don't leave. Don't leave. Make your amends. See what happens. Hug him, whether he wants you to or not. You know, Pretty soon he'll start hugging you. In the end, my father couldn't keep his hands off of me. He couldn't keep his hands off. He was constantly holding my arm, hanging on my jacket, putting his arm around me. He finally got the son that he always wanted. He finally got a son he was proud of. You know, He was really proud of me in Alcoholics Anonymous. There was a guy, Frank Honeycutt, that was an old-timer that knew my dad... And I'd, every time I'd go down and speak at East Bay in Long Beach, Frank would come up to me and he would say, your dad would be so proud of you. you know. And it always just touched me. It's all I ever wanted. you know. It's all I really want from you is I, just, I want you to be proud of me. I want you to love me. I want to be your friend. I don't want to be your teacher. I don't need any devotees. I don't need followers. I just want to be part of you. And I just don't know how to do it. I'm learning. This is on-the-job training. Learning how to be close, learning how to be intimate, learning how to be friends. You know, we use what we got, what we have. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. But my father and I got close together. He had a pain in his leg. It was cancer, and uh, he was 85 years old. And uh, <clears throat> I started taking him and my mother both. We all three of us went to the hospital appointments and. We came at a time like Jay described with his dad. Did you hear what they said? I told my dad, I said, (coughs) you know, Dad, I don't think you're going to fix this one. And he looked at me and he went, well, shit. You know, because he was always fixing things. He was a fixer. He was a mechanic. He was a wrench, you know, and a machinist. He could fix stuff. Fixed everything all the time. And he couldn't fix this one. And he decided that he wasn't going to do the chemotherapy, that he was just going to go for the ride, you know, because he didn't have much time. There was no cure. All they could do is try to elongate his life, and he didn't want to do that. He was 85. And, uh, and we went for the ride, and my mother and I took care of him. And there came a day when, slowly but surely, he ended up in a hospital bed in the living room of his house. I was up there all the time, spending the night a lot, and my mother was there. And we're standing by the side of the bed one day, and it was time to change the diaper, and nobody else was there. The hospice people weren't there. My mother looked at me, and she goes, here we go. And I got to see my parents as lovers. That woman had seen his ass many times in 62 years, you know. And we changed his diapers, and I got to see them. I saw what love looks like. And it wasn't about the diaper, and it wasn't about the part of the body. It's just the action that you take towards someone that you really love. You know, because after a while, my report to you about that stuff is that it becomes just like running the washing machine. It's no big deal. You know, we all think it's a big deal. It's really not that big of a deal. You know, what wouldn't you do for somebody that you truly cared for, that you'd spend most of your life with? And we made a really comfortable environment for him. And all of you showed up. We had meetings at the house. And he'd hear the motorcycles coming down the street. And he would all perk up, you know. And then he would come and we'd have the meeting. And then 45 minutes after you left, he would slowly wind down. And I'm sure it kept him alive, you know, for a long time. Just you, He always had the portable phone in his hand. And the phone would ring and he'd answer it. Half the time he didn't know who the hell you were and it didn't matter. It was just people coming to check on him. People coming up to the house to kiss the ring, you know, say goodbye in their own way. And it was really, really sweet. I told this story earlier. My mother was on the side of the bed with him one day, and Karen and I kind of walked into the other room, and she laid down alongside of him, and she said, Daddy, we had a good marriage, didn't we? And he thought for a minute, and he went, better than I thought it was going to be. 62 years we were married. 
You don't see that so often anymore. And uh, and he passed away. He died. We had a great memorial for him, you know. And everything was at rest between my father and I. We didn't have to have any big heavy talks or anything. You know, one day he was in the living room and I heard him go, oh, shit. And I said, what's wrong? And he, he says, well, I'm not going to make it. And I went, well, yeah. And we just kind of laughed and he just settled down. You know, he just like, he just accepted it. I, mean, I saw what acceptance looks like. You know, the phases of dying. You could actually see it happen. And once he relaxed into it, he just relaxed right into it. One day he talked to me about some of the regrets he had. And I'm sitting there, you know, he had a beautiful home up in Palos Verdes. And you know, he wasn't a super wealthy guy, but he was very comfortable. He made a good living for himself. He had a long, I still run the business that he started. That's the business that I'm in. And I said, you know, Dad, I think it worked out pretty good, man. You're surrounded by your family and the people that love you and your beautiful home. And you want... I said, I think it worked out pretty good. He looked at me and he went, yeah, I guess so, huh? (laughs) I said, I think this is pretty cool, man. You know, I mean, what else would you like to have? You know, in the end, what's important? In the end, are you going to be laying in your bed thinking, God, you know, I should have worked a little harder. You know, I don't think so. You know, I think it's going to be important who's sitting around you at the time and what the feeling is in the room. You know, are we surrounded by people that love us? Do, do people love us? Are we lovable? That's a big question. Well worth asking. And he died. My mother moved in with Karen and I. And a couple years later, she got cancer when she was 85. And we went to the doctor together. And she knew something was wrong. She was living with us in an apartment over the garage. And... Uh, um, we had pooled our resources and bought this house and, and sold their house and paid down the mortgage. And we're all, you know, in the compound, you know, we'd, we're together, you know, a family. And, uh, and she decided that she wasn't going to do the chemotherapy. That She said, she looked at me and she said, I'm going to do what daddy did. I'm just going to go for the ride. I don't want to go. I don't want to get all sick and stuff. I know I don't have much time. So we brought her home. We set up a hospital bed in the living room of my house. And for the last three months of her life, I stayed home and I just took care of my mother because I had the ability to be able to do that. And it seemed like the right thing to do. Well, I knew it was the right thing to do. And, uh, and we would be in the living room. It was in the front room of the house where the bed was. And Jay would drive up and I'd go, oh, Mom, it's Jay again. And she says, oh, God, we're going to have to pray, aren't we? I went, yeah, just, let's just relax into it. It'll be okay. He'll leave soon enough. You know? <laughs> we had a great time. We had a great time. We had a lot of fun. There was a lot of laughter. You know, she wasn't as lighthearted as my dad, but, you know, we were close. You know, I'm standing by the side of the bed one day, and it's time to change the diaper, and there's nobody else there. There's nobody to help me. There's just my mom and I. And this woman always took extremely good care of herself. Whenever you saw her, her hair was always perfect. Makeup was on. She was 85. She looked like she was maybe 65. Really took good care of herself. You know, didn't gain too much weight. Always nicely dressed, well-groomed all the time, wherever she was. She was just looked like that all the time. And she looked up at me, and she started to cry when it was time to change the diaper because she had thought she'd lost her dignity. And, uh, and it was heartbreaking to watch her feel that way. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, you know, I never raised you to do this. And I thought about it and I went, oh, yes, you did. I know now what was going on in that house that I was raised in. I know what you were doing. You were saving those people's lives. I know now. Because I have a house like that now. You're in my house and my house is like that. I live in a house that is exactly like the one that I was raised in. People come to my house and their lives change. You know, like I went to his house and my life changed. Matthew went to his sponsor's house and his life changed. Our lives change because of our interaction with each other. We save each other's lives. I mean, literally, I'm not being joking about that. It's the truth. We are the instrument of God's will. We are how God works in this program. We carry the message. 
We make time available for people. They come into our lives and we simply make time available. The wisdom doesn't spring forth from us. It flows through us. You know, we jokingly say that we stole everything from us. It's the truth. You know, and it's all for free. You can take whatever you find. Use it. It might work. It might work. Who knows what people need to hear? You know, mostly I believe is what they feel from us much more than what they hear from us. They feel acceptance. Acceptance is a feeling that you feel. You know when somebody really accepts you. You can tell when somebody's really listening to you and when they're just doing time. You know, I don't know how you can tell when I'm talking to you on the phone that I'm playing solitaire in the background, but people call me on it all the time because they can feel it over the phone that I'm not really listening. And I try to deny it, but I know they've nailed me. So I said to my mother, yes, you did. You raised me to do exactly this. So roll over. And I changed her diapers. And we entered into a level of intimacy we didn't know was available. And once again, it wasn't about the act of the diaper. It's just the level of caring for someone that you love. And the barriers fall away. And the next time you do it, it's a little bit easier. And the third time she yells at you across the room, Bill, it's time. And here you are. Love is service. It's simply service. It's keeping things clean. It's changing the bed linings. It's listening to her when she wants to talk to you about something, you know. Pulling her up in the bed so she's more comfortable. And the Al-Anon showed up at my house, and Jean Kissel, whose husband just recently died, She's a little short woman, about two foot one, you know, and about as wide as she is tall. And she comes in and she takes me into the back room and she says, are you okay? And well, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. She goes, really? I went, no, I'm not okay. <laughs> and they bring food, the Alanons, you know. They're wonderful, you know. And they came and they helped. They would stop by in the morning, some of them. You know, my ex-wife showed up and we were all taking care of my mother. You know, we have a community here. We have a community that's very real and it's vibrant. What we have to do sometimes is call in the troops. Now, let me ask you this question. What if I would have said no to that man in my kitchen? What if I'd have said no to Al when he wanted me to go to ICU when his mother was dying? What if I would have said no? What if I would have weaseled out on it? Would it have been easier not to go with Chris Gantner when his kid was dying? Maybe not call Jay and never just never go back to the hospital? Would it have been easier to not be with Patrick Keelahan? Because it wasn't that easy going to his house. His wife didn't really care for us too much. And she begrudgingly let us come in. But it would have been real easy just to say, well, no, it's a family. It's a private affair. They don't really want me around, so I don't need to be there, you know? And what would have happened if I'd have not done those things, if when it came time when my father said to me, I'm dying, maybe it would have been easier just to put him in a rest home or not be around it because it's just too hard on me. I don't know if I could make it. I've had guys that I've sponsored have come to me not too long ago and said, you know, my father's dying. I don't think I can get through it. And I go, isn't it your dad that's dying? You know? And he goes, well, yeah, but I don't know. Then why are you worried about you? He's the one that's dying. This isn't happening to you. I mean, this was new information to this guy, you know. And he was able to walk through it. The reason he was able to walk through it is because I had walked through that. I have had those conversations. This was not happening to me. This was happening to my parents. And it's time for little Billy to grow up. And this is what being a real man looks like. Do we do it gracefully? No, nobody said anything about graceful. It's all about simply showing up. That's how you learn how to do this stuff. And God bless the men that came before us that have showed up to these things that can actually help us. I mean, Jay called me one time when his father was going through it and he was having a lot of pain. Or was it Marsha? Marsha, the stepmother, was having all this pain. He calls me up and he goes, man, she is in pain. I said, well, you're not giving her enough stuff. You know, she shouldn't be in pain. He goes, really? I, I'm telling you, the nurses told me when that happened to my mother, you know, man, you got to dose them good. 
You know, it's all about having no pain. Don't worry about them ODing. They're already dying. You know, and he goes, right, I'll call you back. Boom! You know, it's like, I mean, we have good practical information around here, you know, especially about drug overdosing. You know? <clears throat> we have no idea that what we do here is going to affect our lives 20 years down the road, clear over here. My friend Scott Redmond told the story about never healing with his father who died and he was loaded when his father died. He never showed up to the funeral and he just had re huge, horrible regret for all of that. And he wrote about it and went to the, uh, to the cemetery and burned the paper and did the whole thing, but he still had this regret. There was a bunch of guys that were going down to the hospital in downtown Los Angeles sitting with AIDS patients that nobody would be with. And this guy put together a group of guys that would just go down there and read books to them, just spend time with them because they'd been abandoned by their families and all of their friends had, were dead. This was in Hollywood back in the late 80s. It was huge. It was horrendous in our community. So Scott said, oh, sure, I'll go do it. Get in the car. You know? And he went down and he goes in the car and he, and he made friends with this older man that was there. And he would come down there every week and read to him and read stuff to him and just spend time with him. And the man passed away and he went to his funeral and he met his family and all this stuff. And Scott said... Who knew that me sitting with a complete stranger would cause me to heal with my dead father? See, you and I can't figure this stuff out. That's why we need to do all of it. Because we have no idea how we're going to be affected by the actions that we take that seem completely disassociated with what's going on in our lives. Because we're not running the show. This thing is being run by a higher power that has a lot more prescience over this stuff than we do. And I, I, it's my job to not filter any of it, to just show up for it. Thank you very much.